this podcast goes with Nursing 676 Induction and Augmentation PowerPoint. This is podcast number two, and it starts with slide 33, Induction, the Nudges. Slide 34. So there's several ways to potentially facilitate labor starting on its own. So these are the labor nudges, and there's some evidence to support these, but there's not a ton of evidence. So one is membrane sweeping, also known as stripping the membranes. And this is something that was often done back when we did cervical exams every week, starting at 36 weeks. Not that midwives always did this, but certainly physicians did. And sometimes they would sweep or strip the membranes without patient's knowledge. And patients would know that they would just go home and be crampy and spotty and wouldn't know why. So the theory behind it is you're sweeping your finger between the membranes and the inside of the cervical os. And as you do that, you release the body's prostaglandins. So that's the theory behind it. And what you're going to want to do is you're going to need to get your finger past the internal os. And you want to do three sweeps causing separation of the membranes from the inside of the cervix in the lower uterine segment. So first thing, of course, is to talk to patients about this and see if it's something they're interested in. And then you want to explain to them that it's going to be uncomfortable. For it to be effective, for most people, they're going to say it's uncomfortable. They're going to have cramping afterward, and they very well might have spotting afterward, and it may or may not push them into labor. And it's one of those things that we could probably quote a statistic of how often it works, but it really is dependent on how ready that patient is to go into labor, how ready the fetus is to go into labor, and how ready the cervix is to go into labor. So certainly the higher the Bishop's score or the more ripe the cervix, the more likely it is to work. So for somebody who's just one centimeter, it's less likely to work than somebody who's three or four centimeters. I give a very non-scientific about 20% of the time this is going to work, but almost 100% of the time you're going to have some cramping and maybe some spotting. That's kind of how I say it. So then you talk to patients and then you may or may not talk to them before you've checked their cervix. So sometimes you talk to them, they're interested in you doing this, and then you go to check their cervix and you're not able to do it. So maybe mention that before you actually offer it too, that you know, we can talk about this, it's maybe a possibility, but depending on, you know, what your cervix is today, we may or may not be able to do it. The other thing is patients might come to you wanting it done. So again, talking to them about it, talking through all of this. There really is not any risk to the pregnant person or baby. There are some people who really don't feel like it should be done in the presence of group B strep there's no evidence that it's harmful. Certainly it can potentially cause the bag of membranes to rupture. And that did happen to me once or twice in the 25 years that I've been a midwife. It may shorten the interval to onset of labor. 
So even if it doesn't work, say, that night, it potentially decreases the time from maybe two weeks from then to a week from then. It does release those endogenous prostaglandins from the cervix. So the indications, it needs to be somebody who is a candidate for labor. So is this somebody that you're comfortable with them going into labor? Is the cervix at least one centimeter? Is the head well applied? And the other thing I would add here is think about how busy the labor and delivery unit is. So if you have somebody who wants you to sweep their membranes and you happen to know that patients are laboring in triage, your colleagues are not going to like you one single bit if you sweep the membranes and send somebody on in, potentially in labor. The jury is out on whether you do it prior to 40 weeks. And I'm somebody who says it really depends. So there's some evidence that doing it routinely at, say, 37 weeks and on decreases the risk of patients going post-date. Um, other people feel like that that is unnecessary and can just cause them to have more painful contractions without going into labor. Certainly thinking about um, whether or not this is somebody who is, again, three centimeters, teetering on the edge of labor. That's somebody I might do it at, say, 38 and 5 if, say, they're four centimeters and they're a multip and they've been laboring on and off, on and off. Possibly doing a membrane sweep is going to almost augment their labor to continue versus somebody who's one centimeter, 50%, and you really think this is not somebody you want to go into labor until their cervix is potentially a little bit more favorable. If you do it properly, I've had midwives say you should get some bloody show on your finger. The other thing is that sometimes patients will actually get a little flush in their cheeks if you've done a proper membrane sweeping. If they're not at least a little bit uncomfortable with it, it's probably that you haven't really done a membrane sweep. So I hope that you get a chance to. Um, obviously only if it's an appropriate candidate for that. So slide number 35, unprotected sex. There's prostaglandins in semen. So there's a potential, also a potential release of endogenous prostaglandins. So again, this is thinking about prostaglandins and the evidence shows there is an earlier onset of spontaneous labor and a reduction in post-term pregnancies, less chance of induction of labor, a, um, a caveat is once membranes have ruptured, then the risk of infection is too great with doing unprotected intercourse. So again, no condoms. This needs to be unprotected. So it needs to be somebody for whom that's not putting them at risk for a sexually transmitted infection. The other thing is for a same-sex couple, unprotected sex or sex in general can also be helpful because of the nipple stimulation associated with it. And there's some question that potentially orgasm will also increase the body's endogenous prostaglandins and stimulate labor. 
a lot of patients will look at you like you're crazy when they're 40 weeks and you talk to them about having sex because at that point they're really uncomfortable. So talking to them about positions that might be more comfortable for them and certainly it should be something that they and their partner feel comfortable doing. And some partners don't feel comfortable having sex at the end of pregnancy either. So having a conversation about them is about it is a good idea. Slide number 36, acupuncture, acupressure. We're going to have more about this um, from one of your one of the student groups, so I'm not going to go into it in detail. But the acupuncture at points L14 and S6 supports cervical ripening at term, less likely to birth by cesarean, and fewer women receiving acupuncture required use of induction methods. So some promise, more to come later. Slide 37, castor oil. Castor oil is a laxative, so it stimulates the gut, which stimulates the vagal nerve, thereby stimulating the uterus. It will for sure 100% cause diarrhea. It can also cause nausea, and if patients don't stay hydrated, it can cause dehydration. There doesn't seem to be any harmful fetal effects from it. It may be helpful in post-date pregnancy. So if you talk to patients about castor oil, this is what I would tell them. If their cervix is not favorable, they should not try castor oil. But potentially, if their cervix is favorable, their post-date, you've done a membrane sweep, that it might be helpful in tipping them over the edge into labor. Do two ounces either in orange juice or sherbet or something like that. It tastes disgusting and you can repeat it every four hours if necessary, but again, I wouldn't repeat it any more than one more time, and they need to stay really well hydrated because it's going to cause them to have diarrhea, which can then cause dehydration. Slide 38, nipple stimulation, shows, showed that there was a reduced number of women not going into labor, an increased number of women in labor within 42 hours of nipple stimulation, also a decreased rate of postpartum hemorrhage. So there's no real consensus on the best way to do this, but one option is nipple stimulation on the left side for two minutes, wait five minutes to see if a contraction starts. If a contraction starts during the two minutes that you're doing it, then stop as soon as the contraction starts. After that five minutes of wait time, the right side for two minutes. Repeat and then walk around for 20 minutes. Then after that, you can repeat. Again, there's no magic to this. Um, you can use a breast pump or just manual nipple stimulation kind of right behind the nipple on the areola. Sometimes getting in the shower and letting the water hit the nipples and do nipple stimulation there can also be um, an option. Slide 39, raspberry leaf tea. So raspberry leaf tea we know is a uterine tonic, so it's just kind of a nice herb. Red raspberry leaf tea can also be used early pregnancy for nausea. It's a very mild tasting tea, so it's not disgusting. It's pretty bland. Um, there's a reduced incidence of needing artificial rupture of membranes and instrumental delivery in the studies. There's no detriment 
if somebody has no risk factors for preterm labor, you can start it as early as 30 to 32 weeks and have them discontinue if strong contractions occur and they can do as much as three to five cups a day. So it's going to keep people hydrated, which is good. I think it's just a nice kind of gentle thing to do. There's some question of whether it decreases the risk of postpartum hemorrhage and patients can continue to do it postpartum. Um, one thing I would mention that you want to talk to patients, this isn't the same thing as raspberry flavored tea. So these are raspberry leaves. Slide number 40, blue and black cohosh. So interesting because it's opposite to me of what you would think is that actually blue cohosh is stronger than black cohosh. To date, there's no randomized controlled trials or case controlled studies. In other words, studies where there were comparison groups that didn't use blue or black cohosh. There are four case studies or case reports, and a case report is typically like one case that reported fetal hypoxia, maternal, MI or myocardial infarction and congestive heart failure. So again, a case report is the lowest level of research and you don't know, was it from the blue or black cohosh or is it totally just coincidental? But I'm not a huge fan because I don't think there's a lot of evidence that it works. And I think there is that case study evidence that it could be risky. Slide number 41, evening primrose oil. Again, there's very little evidence, but there may be some increase in effacement with evening primrose oil. It has linoleic acid, which may increase prostaglandin response and increase cervical ripening. So that's the theory behind it. Um, 500 milligram tablets, three times a day, starting at 37 weeks. Some people will say, take the, take the capsule, poke a hole in it, use it as lubrication during intercourse. It can cause some irritation in the vagina though. So thinking about that, some people will just say do it intravaginally. Again, I think it can cause some irritation. Slide number 42, some foods that have been theorized or there are stories out there about them helping people go into labor. So pineapple juice contains the enzyme bromelain, and it may, but there's been very little research, improve cervical ripening. So if people love pineapple and they want to try it, it probably doesn't cause any harm. A lot of excess pineapple, you can get diarrhea. So again, as long as they're hydrating, that might be something that puts them into labor. Um, there's been a few studies about dates in um, increasing the likelihood of spontaneous labor. And typically they talk about six to seven dates. It may decrease the need for augmentation, may ripen the cervix. It may decrease postpartum hemorrhage. One caveat I would say about the date research is a lot of it was done in Iran. And I've read some interesting news reports about research in Iran because People who are getting their master's needs, need to do a master's thesis, and how many of those are done with purchased fake data. So I tend to take 
that research a little bit with a grain of salt. Again, there's no harm if people enjoy eating dates um, and they want to try it six to seven dates and it may decrease the need for the augmentation, may ripen their cervix, may decrease postpartum hemorrhage. I know this is when Leah always tells the story about her patient who was actively having a postpartum hemorrhage, trying to chow down on dates to keep from needing oxytocin or mesoprostol postpartum. And um, that is not an appropriate response to an actual postpartum hemorrhage. And eventually Lee was able to convince her to get some pharmacologic interventions to stop her from bleeding to death. There's a restaurant in Atlanta that has this labor-inducing eggplant parmesan, and they claim that their eggplant parmesan is going to put you into labor. Now, again, there's no evidence for this. It's just kind of fun to think about um, different things that people think are going to put you into labor. All right, so slide number 43. Now we're going to think about actual induction or the actual pushing people into labor versus just the little nudges. Slide number 44, I am a big fan of history. I love history. I love obstetric history. I, I love the old forceps and things like that. So back in the day, there was something called buckle pit. And as you can imagine from your um, pharmacology, buckle pit went under the tongue. And they would start it, and every 20 minutes, you would get a little bit bigger dose of this buckle pit. Then... There was subcutaneous Pitocin, IM, intranasally, and of course how we do it, IV. All of the time it was always done in incremental amounts. Slide number 45. So prior to me being in midwifery school, it was really only oxytocin. Pitocin. That was really the only method of induction. And as a labor and delivery nurse at a small hospital, I would say our successful induction rate was maybe 10%. They would throw in the towel and do a cesarean. And so then as I went through midwifery school in the mid 90s, I learned, you know, prostaglandins started coming to the forefront. And it really did change the efficacy of induction because you can use a lot of Pitocin on an unripe cervix and nothing is going to happen. So then probably 10, 15 years later, added to that was mechanical methods of cervical ripening. So it really has changed the um, efficacy of oxytocin and inductions. So the pharmacologic agents for cervical ripening are all essentially prostaglandins. And prostaglandins work by blocking progesterone and they cause a local inflammatory response. What happens is it dissolves or there's dissolution of the collagen bundles and it increases the submucosal water content of the cervix. So it breaks down the collagen bundles and makes the cervix softer, opens it up, thins it out. And Prostaglandins also do cause the uterus to contract, so sometimes it's all that's needed 
are the prostaglandins and you never need to go to oxytocin. Slide 46. There are, however, controversies surrounding prostaglandins for induction of labor. Um, again, I'm going to tell you stories from my past. When I first graduated, we used prostaglandins that were mixed up by the pharmacy, and they put them in syringes, and they dyed them blue. And we would always joke about we wanted a darker blue because we thought that it would work better. Of course, we didn't really believe that. It was just kind of a, a little superstitious thing. But that's what we used was prostaglandins mixed in gel formulated by the pharmacist. And it took a lot of gel. It took a lot of time. And then I moved from Battle Creek to a practice north of Kalamazoo, and they were using mesoprostol or Cytotec. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And so then the first couple times I used Cytotec, I was absolutely astonished at how much better it worked. So certainly it's um, interesting to think that something that was off-label, Cytotec is actually a drug used for ulcers. So category X for pregnancy because it's known to cause uterine contractions. There are side effects to, um, especially to Cytotec, tachycystole or too many contractions. It can cause fever, chills, vomiting, diarrhea. It can cause precipitous labor, which is essentially what happened to one or two of my patients when I moved from this prostaglandin gel to Cytotec because I was not anticipating how well it would work. With prior cesareans or uterine scars, it can cause uterine rupture. And I cringe thinking back because at that point we didn't really know that. And so everybody was using Cytotec, even in prior cesareans. And we had one patient who'd had three prior cesareans and then went to a physician and had uh, like two vaginal births where they used Cytotec. So thinking about her risk, she didn't have a uterine rupture, but it's one of those things that looking back, we were very fortunate. It can increase the risk of intrapartum and postpartum hemorrhage, and it can cause non-reassuring fetal heart rate patterns. Um, so need to be monitored. It depends on where you are, how long you monitor after um, prostaglandins are given, anywhere from one hour to three hours post-administration. Slide 47, Cervidil is dinoprostone. Cervidil is manufactured specifically for um, cervical ripening. There's 10 milligrams of dinoprostone, which is a prostaglandin. It needs to be kept frozen. There's a removable cord. It's kind of like a tampon cord. Um, patients are instructed to stay supine for two hours, and then they can walk around. Typically, you're going to have some uterine contractions within five to seven hours. You remove it after 12 hours. It is more expensive, and it is not as effective as Cytotec. Slide 48. Cytotec, or mesoprostol, comes in 100 microgram tablets. And make sure you keep your micrograms and milligrams straight when you're talking about drugs. The usual dosing is 25 micrograms or a quarter of a tablet. You place it 
in the posterior fornix of the cervix or right behind the cervix, and you can do it every three to six hours. You don't want to redose if somebody has two contractions in a 10-minute period, or in other words, are they having regular contractions? And you don't want to start oxytocin until at least four hours after the last dose. Hyperstimulation usually occurs one hour post-dose, but maybe up to nine and a half hours post-dose. Slide 49, mechanical techniques. There's laminaria, and the trade name is Dilipan. These are sterilized compressed seaweed. So this picture shows you what it looks like when it's compressed and what it looks like after it's been in the cervix for a while. You use a speculum to visualize the cervix and you slide it into the cervix and use a gauze pad in the vagina to hold it in place. This is used far more for termination of pregnancy. So if somebody has an intrauterine fetal demise using it, um, then for post-dates pregnancy. Slide 50. Now we're going to talk about other mechanical methods that you may have already had an opportunity to use. It depends on where you are, whether you use a Foley bulb or a Cook catheter. Cook catheters are specifically designed for cervical ripening, whereas a Foley bulb just is a typical urinary catheter, indwelling catheter that is used. So the nice thing is you have less uterine hyperstimulation than when you use prostaglandin or vaginal mesoprostol, um, but it potentially may increase neonatal and maternal infections. So you can use it with pre-labor rupture of membranes, but use with caution. Slide 51, the Foley bulb. Um, you can do a digital insertion or a speculum. And we'll practice this in class, but um, it's kind of like personal preference. And so see what your preceptor does and then decide how you want to do it. Um, you can use uh, like a, um, a guide, um, a stylus inside the Foley to make it firmer to use it. If you're going to do a digital insertion, some people will use like a ring forceps and hold it right up at the tip so that they can use a spec, you know, visualize the cervix with a speculum and then hold that close to the tip so they can kind of slide it in that way. You do use a fairly large Foley. This isn't typically one you're gonna use for a urinary catheter. It's a 16 French Foley and you wanna slide it past the cervical os. Then once you know it's through the cervix, the balloon is through the cervix, you don't want to inflate the balloon in the cervix, but it needs to be through the cervix into the uterus. You fill it with between 30 and 80 milliliters of sterile water, and then you apply traction by taping the um, Foley to the medial thigh. And there's some question about whether you actually need to do the traction, but that's typically what's been done. You leave it in until it falls out. Slide 52 is the Cook catheter. And what you're going to do with the Cook catheter is advance, it has two balloons on it. So you're gonna advance both balloons into the cervix. Then you inflate the U balloon with 
40 milliliters of saline. And the little, the two little um, ports are going to tell you which is the U or the uterine balloon. And then you pull it back. And then you inflate the vaginal balloon with 20 milliliters of normal saline. Then you can add more fluid to each until both contain 80 milliliters. This one you don't need to tape to the leg. So essentially the cervix is being squeezed between those two balloons. There's really no evidence that one works better than the other. It's kind of where you are. Slide 53. Here's a little cost comparison because cost really is always a factor and we need to think about that as providers. So a Foley balloon costs $3. A Cook is 41. Misoprostol is $1.09 for a 100 microgram tablet whereas Dinoprostone or the Cervidil for one insert is $218.94. So I think you'll find a lot of places don't even have Cervidil anymore. I like having Cervidil as an option because the nice thing about Cervidil is it does come with that little string and if you end up with hyperstimulation or you end up with a lot of deep variables or other fetal heart tone issues, it can be easily pulled out with that string. But when you look at the difference in cost, you can see why a lot of places don't even have the Cervidil. All right, we're gonna stop here and this will be the podcast number two. And then you can move on to podcast number three whenever you feel like it.